Welcome to the More Than More podcast, where we discuss building meaningful, impactful businesses, careers, and lives through real estate. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of the More Than More podcast. It's it's Friday morning, mid-morning, and I'm sitting with Travis Bouchaw, who flew down here uh, from Northeast Iowa to hang out with us. So welcome, Travis. Hey, glad to be here. This is fun. Um. Uh, you didn't break any speed speed limits you know, or anything. I flown with the traffic, so I, I will just go with that. Um, well, thanks for making the drive. You've Absolutely. you've been coming down here quite a bit the last few weeks. Huh? You know, it's yeah, it, it's kind of crazy. But I've probably been in the Des Moines metro area at least once a week for the last couple months here. So but you're here good. a bunch anyway, right? Absolutely, with IR and everything, and yeah. So these aren't aren't trips that I wasn't probably going to be making anyway. Just it works well to put it all together into to one journey down here. You said phone calls on the drive. It's the easiest way. You know, I'm, I'm not one that likes to sit at a desk and make phone calls, so it works really well to be on the road, uh, multitasking there as I'm, I'm covering some miles and getting those phone calls in. So it's, it's been a good way to connect when I'm, I'm forced to take that four lane on, on 20 to 35. It's, it's not a whole lot of thinking I've, that has to take I've place. I've made the that. drive up there quite a bit. <laughs> right. it's, it gets a little numbing on uh, 20 and, it, and Highway 3 as well, just numbs my brain. not much to see. <laughs> Well, um, this is a fun way to wrap up the week and glad to have you here. I feel like there's just a ton that we can get into. I mean, we've, we've only known each other for a couple of months, but right. um, there's no lack of things to talk about. No, I think we've got plenty of, of different topics we can delve into. And I know you're forehead deep into a whole bunch of stuff at the state level and a whole bunch of places. And, and so I know you've got a lot of great insight for everyone. So I'm excited to dig into it. I am too. Um, hey, so real quick though, you are, uh, you've, you've been technically on board since really the turn of the year, January 1st. Right. So I'm almost two full months into this. We'll call it a, we'll call it two months, maybe closer to a month and a half. It's, it's all been good. happened very quickly. Very quickly. And so you are the, uh, if there's one thing that changes here a lot, it's our titles. <clears throat> We're constantly innovating and moving as a team, but you are the, the Northeast Iowa regional director um, you're obviously a real estate broker. You've run a real estate organization. You're uh, stepping in to kind of take our whole Northeast Iowa, we, we call it a quadrant or what do we call it? You know, Ma- yeah, marketplace, the, the region, the market. And, and that's what's exciting is is we have a, an incredible market there and some untapped markets as well. And so it's creating yeah. a, a north, so, north south corridor that really runs from where we've set up in Cedar Falls and, and Waverly. And taking that to, to Cedar Rapids and to Iowa City and creating really great connections there and then running those east and west to to the Des Moines Metro as well. So it's it's exciting for us to see this coming together. Well, the, the growth into that northeast Iowa region, some of it's not organic. I mean, we acquired the Cedar Falls and Waverly yep. teams from uh, LSB, a bank, but other stuff has happened very organically. Teams, agents moving out to Iowa City. Uh, friends and family getting into real estate in Cedar Falls, but then a whole bunch of stuff even up in the far. Well, I'm my wife's from far northeast Iowa, and she is, you know, which is crazy. <coughs> we you know find these connections, and they happen all the time in northeast Iowa. But you know, I've known your wife's family since I was probably in junior high, high school. So it's it's interesting how that all plays out. Yeah, just found out a couple of weeks ago that you wrestled my brother-in-law. Brother-in-law, yeah, yeah. yep. There, yep. Should I ask who won? You know, we, it doesn't matter. I did, but we don't need to tell him that. But, you know, it, the, the side of that is, is every one of our managers and cheerleaders were in love with him. So, you know, he, he got the girls, I got the wrestling match. So, but it's, uh, it's, it's crazy those connections that happen in some of those small towns. But I think that's why it's a market that's so interesting is because there's connections and it, it happens organically. 
yeah. that, that people are interested in what C21 is doing. Well, look, you've been here a month, uh, not much more than a month, and you've already won a lot of people over. Uh, uh, we can talk a little bit about your strengths. You're a big strength finder guy. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but obviously uh, getting... Worming your not worming your way into a terrible way to say it, but winning winning our team over. You've uh, just had a lot of compliments about just the small amount of time you've spent with people, and I think you're very very good and and quick at winning trust from people, which seems to be a superpower that you have. <laughs> you know, you, you're you're in a very unique situation and special situation here because your staff is so incredible. And I think that's our staff, I guess I get to say now. Um, but but it was it was amazing walking in here that first day before really you and I had, hadn't even come to a, a conclusion as to where the future of this slide and getting to meet everybody was, was fantastic, but they're just such good people. And I think that's, that's why this organization, this company is, is so special to me already is that it's just full of really good people. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's 100%. You can't, yeah. There's, there's nothing to say except yes about that. And that well, it's me. been a journey and, and it's been fun to build up this team and get that bench to, to where it is today. And, uh, but couldn't be more proud of the quality of individuals we've partnered with. Absolutely. So fun to have you on board. So yeah. why, just out of curiosity, why now? Why C21? Why why the openness or the interest in this big shift in your world? And, Absolutely. Uh, and, and you'd mentioned, I've, you know, I've been in real estate now since 2009, which to me, I still feel like I'm just getting into it. And people, when I tell them that I've been in this for 13 years, like, wow, so you're, you know, you've been doing this a while. And I feel like I'm still just getting a grasp on, on how this all works, but I've been in since 09 and then owned my own brokerage since 2013. And I was content. And I, I assume that's probably what I was going to do until I was no longer doing that anymore. And that's, it would have been fine. I, I could have retired practicing real estate and being a broker, but it, but it came down to the fact that I was just content. And so when this opportunity came about and it went from being content to being excited, I think that's what really got me into to where I am now is it was something that I was going to be excited about every day instead of just something I was doing. Um, YC21, and, and we've had this conversation, there were a lot of other companies that, that had reached out and said, hey, are you, are you interested in partnering? Um, and I wasn't, you know, we kind of shot those all down pretty quickly. But this was a, a conversation that, you know, it was a year and a half of talking to Joe and talking to C21 agents and talking to you where it really evolved into what it is now. And I think that's why, why C21 is that it wasn't something just quick and, and we're going to throw this together. It was a lot of good conversations. Maybe we'll dig into unique ability <laughs> later, but, and I don't know how much time you and I've talked about unique ability as a, little a, bit, as yeah. a concept. Uh, but it feels like what we've done here is is create a context uh, for you. But obviously, it's what we've done well as a team is find people's unique ability and create spaces for them to really flourish in the thing that they're just best at. Absolutely. And that's that's probably what got me so interested in this is it wasn't you coming and saying, hey, here's a position. Do you want to fill it? It was, hey, we want to make this happen. What can we create? as a position that's going to get you excited, but also going to compliment everybody else here that we have well, working for C2. Part of that was figuring out what your superpower really was. And and by the way, what would you say it is? Like superpowers may be too flattering. I was term. just going to say that's, yeah, I think we're, we're giving that too much credit. Well, but take it down a notch. What's, what, what, what's your passion? What are you, what's your unique ability? Absolutely. It's, it's people and, and, and no doubt about that. And uh, I, I, not just love meeting people because that's a little too cliche. You know, I love people. I love meeting people, but it's really helping. I enjoy, and it's probably why the broker side was so exciting to me. I like helping people succeed. I like seeing people that 
have potential and then watching that potential grow and, and making that happen. And that's why I was so excited about what we have going here. You're building businesses on a, a regular basis for your agents, not just helping them hit numbers. Yes. Which maybe we could do better at helping with the number side, but it seems like our guys are doing great without focusing on Absolutely. those metrics. And that's, I think that's why they're doing great. Well, yeah. And, and some of the brokerage administrative end may, you know, you're a really, really high quick start. And so I, I imagine that liberating you to focus on the people side of the brokerage business, as opposed to the administrative side is part of what really puts you in your lane. It, absolutely. No doubt. And that's, I, again, just it's where the position was really molded to fit where, where I could excel at it instead of saying, Hey, right, Travis, here's some spots where we can fit you in. Let's see if we can make it work. Instead, we, you took a different approach and I think that's, what's going to help make this work. It's how we've done everything here. And it actually is, it's great because it's, it's more, I, I'm trying to think who said this, you know, um, uh, uh, built to last, uh, get the right people on the bus. Right. <clears throat> uh, who's, who's the author? John Gordon. Are you sure? No. Nope, we we talked about that because it's not the energy buzz. Which I, no, you and I have thrown so many books back well, and forth at each other. We we're readers. Read <clears throat> um, it's going to come to me, and we'll remember, and then we'll yell it out so that yep. people know. Red book. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it is a red book. Okay, and it's not the five dysfunctions. Nope, we're gonna um, we're gonna figure it out later. We are. We'll get there. Um, but we're about getting the right people on the bus, and then figuring out their unique abilities. And it's not like you can build a company around people's personalities, but but you can figure out what people have to bring and right. then tailor opportunities for them to give their best and get the best. And you, you mentioned before, um, part of, of my passion and leadership is, is Clifton strengths. Um, you know, it was called strength finders, Clifton strengths are synonymous, but it's really focusing on what are people good at mm. and then making them better at what they're already good at. And, and I think that's, that's a different approach, but I think that's something you're already doing here within these oh, walls. It's the same and thing, just different words. It's different right? words, but it's it's saying, all right, what are you good at, and let's make you better at it. Instead of just trying to create average, mediocre agents, we're saying this is what you're phenomenal at. We're going to make you even better. Well, I can tell you, I know I'm liberated by not having to constantly work on my weaknesses. I mean, we got to do that too, but playing to your right. strengths feels like the right it's idea. The way to go. So let's do your uh, background real quick. Can you tell the story of? Uh, so you you're from Northeast Iowa. I am Strawberry Point. Home of the world's largest strawberry. So you need, <laughs> need to get through there at some point. So you grew up in a pretty small town. I did. I did. And uh, you were, if I remember, wrestling, baseball kind of was your background? Those were, yeah. Well, you know, when I was, it was, when you say small town, I mean, we were a town of 1,200 people. I graduated in a class of less than 70. So yeah. I know a lot of, of people out there going to be nodding along. They're like, yeah, that's, that's small town Iowa. But others, you know, when I mentioned that, they're like, whoa, like that's a small class. So you did everything. You know, you didn't just do two sports, you did four sports and you didn't just go to class, but you were also student council and you were involved in everything because it's what was expected. There's something kind of wholesome about that. There absolutely is. Um, and when I talk to friends that, you know, their kids have to choose between band or choir or baseball or football and, and they get so pigeonholed to not really get that opportunity to find their talents and find their strengths. And so being in a small town allowed that. And I, I realized pretty quickly that being involved and being a leader was was what I really enjoyed. And so uh, left there, went to the University of Iowa. And so started um, looking at, at potentially pre-med exercise science and loved the science side of it because I'm a learner, I'm a reader. Didn't love being in the hospital. I was volunteering at UIHC and I'm like, this is not where I can ever belong. Like why? The you know, just seeing, the, seeing people suffering, seeing people in pain, um, even at, you know, I, I did a stint uh, volunteering at physical therapy at UIHC 
And so there you're helping people get better. And even then I'm like, this is just not where I want to be. You know, every day that I would go volunteer there, I think, man, these people are in in such a bad place and I know they're going to get in a better place, but I need to be in a place where they're already good. And so I I made a transition, went into actually uh, education in English. So I was a high school English teacher coming out of the University of Iowa. And uh, so did a couple of years in that. And then how was that? You know, so just like everything, it, it had, it had its benefits. Um, you know, I loved helping kids just like I talk about now with agents. I loved helping kids succeed the ones where I saw the potential, but mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, I, I kind of liked the outcasts, you know, I, it wasn't that I, I liked the ones that were out there with 4.0s and writing perfect papers. I really liked the ones that, that maybe said to me, like, I haven't read a book since second grade and here they are in their junior year of, of high school. And had gotten that far without ever reading a book. What was it? You, you related to them or it was the challenge? It, it wasn't or? even related because I was, you know, I was that model student. I was valedictorian 4.0. Um, I think it was more that I, I saw where for so long they just kind of been pushed to the side and never given that opportunity to, to really excel. And that was fun for me. And so that's that part, you know, the coaching and, and being there to support them is what I miss. Um, but the, the, there's just no flexibility in teaching. You know, you're put into a classroom and you're there and, and yeah, you can, you can, gain experience you can go different directions but it's just not where i saw myself for the long run well and as a are you an eight, an eight or a nine quick start i think yeah i'm an eight there yeah. yeah yeah so you don't need to be chained to a desk <laughs> i don't do well or, in a, right yep driving two hours back and forth across the states more your cup of tea it really is yeah <laughs> so at some point you step out of that and into, straight into real estate or i did it? so yeah so uh interesting enough so my wife who we met when at the university of iowa was a pharmacist and she'd been working for the university of iowa hospitals uh as a pharmacist right there at uh at their big campus and she had gotten an offer to work for an independent pharmacy in Owain, iowa which actually ironically wasn't far from where i grew up it was also where i never thought i would return to i i kind of assumed that iowa city area des moines area kansas city is where we would eventually be and so coming back more or less home was was weird um, because there were still people that I knew from when I was a kid that were living in the area, working in the area. And so it was it was a bit of a return back to where I was in a place I never thought I would be again. Because you so, kind of, uh, I want to be careful here because there's, there's pros and cons to a small town and my wife's from Claremont right. in Northeast <laughs> Iowa, but you kind of graduate from the small town to the big city of Iowa City, right? Absolutely. And, so yeah. did it feel like returning? It, it did, you know, and, and growing up, I'll say that, you know, Owine was a town of, of 6,500. That was the big town we went to from Strawberry Point because, you know, they had the big grocery store, they had a movie theater, <laughs> they had a McDonald's and a Subway. So that was, that was a big deal. Well, then after going to Iowa City, you know, it was like, wow, we're returning back to, mm. to small town. Uh, but we, uh, my, my goal, my plan, I shouldn't say goal, my plan was to just substitute teach for a year. And so... She took the job at the pharmacy. It was too late for me to get a, a full-time teaching job. So I was going to sub for 12 months and then apply. And as we were looking at houses, our broker, Sandy Graff, who's mm. now a C21 signature agent with us, uh, Sandy said, you know what? You need to come be a real estate agent with me. You need to get your license. You need to come to Cornerstone. And we had that conversation. I, said, I, I don't know sales, right? I'm a, a high school English teacher. I don't know sales. And she said, I'm not worried about that one bit. You know people. And that was kind of the, the eye-opener for me. And it's probably the direction we still are now. I wouldn't say I know sales. You know, I'm, I'm not good at it riding people until they break. The negotiating factor is not where I'm at, um, but I just know people. And so that's where I, I jumped in. Um, I literally, I think it was a middle of September 
And Sandy said, you need to. Um, within two weeks, I'd finished my 60 hour, my 36, and I was taking my exam. So I went from thinking I was going to substitute teach for 12 months to being a licensed real estate agent in, in the course of about, I think it was like 16 days, which is wild to think about. But it was also in 2009 and the housing market was insane. My mm -hmm. first, I think the first house I showed was a $6,000 house. Um, you know, so it was the worst time in October of 2009 to enter real estate. But it also taught me a lot at that point in time of those things within sales that I wasn't necessarily interested in, but had to be to be able to make it to survive. I was just thinking, is, is 2009 the worst year or was it like 2005, six, where you got to experience the good and then hit and the bad, then hit the bad. So we got a lot of people here that started in 09 and it was rough. I yeah. mean, it was dry and everything was short sales and foreclosures. Oh, but it was, it was good to have experienced some of that because yeah. it, it really gives a, a better reference point for where we are today. It, it does. And I, it, that's, that's what I, I tell everybody is, is especially when I'm teaching by, you know, classes to new licensees. And I say, Hey, I said, this, this is a tough time to get into real estate even right now, right? Mm. This is a tough time with limited inventory. Well, it's hard to start uh, right now. That's as what, a yeah. Agent. As a new agent, it's, mm. it's really tough. Um, and that's why, you know, and I don't know if we'll talk about it today or save it for the next one, but the concept of building teams and getting on mm. under somebody that's going to help mentor you and, and you're an advocate of that huge advocate for that. Um, especially in a market like this, um, you know, I came on and was doing short sales and doing foreclosures and, you know, I, I had to learn a lot on the fly because we had to cover a whole bunch of different, what would technically be niches, but we just couldn't because short sales were relatively new. And so I think agents now are in a tough spot. Agents in 2009 were in a tough spot, but I think there's always, you know, there's always a tough time to enter into, into this. Uh, we, we, our coach talks about the creative destruction cycle. It's a economic idea, but ultimately it's in the context of, uh, what was the cash cow or the normative market. Right. It's in the breakdown of that, that becoming commoditized or broken where it, you need that for the next innovation cycle to happen. And so what was new becomes normalized, becomes Absolutely. old, starts to break. And as much as it sucks that everything keeps breaking, it's actually because things keep breaking that we get to have opportunity in these new innovation cycles. Does that right. make any sense? Absolutely does. And to some extent, yeah, that's what's going on. There's always some challenge going on right. in some new market, but it's, it's in the challenge. Back then, learning short sales was the opportunity. Yeah, it, and it sure was. You know, and that's, we talk about all the time, the statistic hasn't changed. You know, about 75 to 80% of all new agents are done in real estate after the fifth mm. year, right? They make it through one cycle and then they renew, they don't renew again, you know? So it's not that that happened 15 years ago or 20 years ago. It's it's still happening now. So the fact that somewhere in that 70 to 80% range is, is done after five years means that there's always a challenge. It's not as easy as anybody ever thinks it is. And because of that, that's where companies that do great training and do great education and support new agents build incredible companies because we're building a business that even through tough times, we've got a strategy to get you there. And I think that's what's unique here. It's also where agents are willing to power through and do the hard work in that first three to five years if they can not survive, but thrive through that, why the opportunity is so sweet. Absolutely. Because there's a constant cycle going on in the rest of the industry. Okay, so you're now selling. It's around 2009. It's rough times. And then there's a shift there. How, how there, there is. And, and we got through and, and you know, we're, we're fortunate, number one, because it's Iowa. And so we never roller coasters. So when prices skyrocket, you know, we slowly go up. When prices plummet, we slowly go down, but we stay pretty stable. Small town Iowa is even better. And so even though the market was tough, 
our prices stayed pretty stable. Mm-hmm. And so once I got, you know, once I get into that a couple of years, I'm thinking like, Hey, you know what, this is, this is something that I can continue to build. And so you're selling full-time now selling full-time, no, yep. no more teaching. There was no more teaching. Yeah. And it was literally that, like I said, I got licensed in, in October of 09 and I was all in. So there was no teaching then. I, I haven't stepped into a classroom, you know, since well, we moved. not that kind of class. Not that kind yeah. of class. I haven't stepped into a high school class. Well, so I, that's what, I love that part of your story is because you're, you're a teacher by, by, by heart, right? And, Absolutely. And you found a way to do that in a new space. I did. Yeah. I did. And it's, it's something I love and we'll probably get to that. Uh, but, but that's where we were is, you know, 2011, 2012, things started going really well. And I mentioned Sandy before that she was the, uh, the broker owner and founder of Cornerstone Real Estate. And so Sandy approached me and said, you know what, I'm, I'm at the point where I want to switch spots with you. I want you to get your broker's license. I want you to become broker owner of this she company. She opened the conversation. She opened the conversation. Very cool. Uh, which was awesome. Um, and she was, you know, I wouldn't be in real estate if it wasn't for her. If a different broker had approached me and said, hey, you need to do real estate, I probably would have said, you know what, I'm going to keep teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, but Sandy was just one of those very special people that, number one, made me believe that I could do it. But two, you know, she, she was a great mentor, great at having those hard conversations of Travis, you know, you need to fix this and Travis, you need to do this better. Um, but a hundred percent supportive. So when she said, I want you to go get your broker's license, I said, great. you know, when she's like, get it right away, I'm ready to do this. And so (laughs) it was the same thing. I think it was about a two and a half, three month process where I went from being a sales agent to being a broker, to being broker owner. And so, and then we flipped spots and it's been perfect. She, uh, she's still been my mentor, even as I switched and took over as broker owner. When I had problems, when I had questions, I went to Sandy and I still do. What year was that? That was 2013. Okay. And so I, I owned Cornerstone from 13 all the way up. Technically still do, as we mentioned, I'm, I'm yeah. kind of closing everything out there. And then, and then, uh, I get to come over with all my agents that already have, but <laughs> built that up. Um, you know, Sandy and I had the, the strawberry point or the, the old wine office with a few agents there. We opened up uh, another office in strawberry point. I opened up an, uh, an office in Solon down in Iowa city area and just looked at, at growing the team. So we went from a team of four to a team of 11. And, and that I think was really what opened the door to an idea of growth. And especially because we hear all the time, it's small town, you know, your, your brokerage can only be so big because there's only so much of the pie, but there's a lot of small towns in Northeast Iowa that aren't represented. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't have a real estate office there. And so there's huge opportunities for that. And I think getting the agents to understand that there is an abundant number of, of properties that we weren't getting because somebody else from, Mm -hmm. you know, there was also partway in between the two is getting those. So we grew really quickly. So we're, we're now two years ago, Joe and I are having similar insights about Iowa and about these big markets that we're in and realizing the extent to which they're commoditized and there's just tons of brokerages and it's sort of this cutthroat recruiting space. And then we've got this entire state with a whole bunch of really good agents without as much support, training, guidance, infrastructure. So, you know, you're talking about all these small towns where there's opportunity and, and we're having the same kind of thought where we're realizing the extent to which the value that we offer as a brokerage how much of an impact that can have in some of these towns for the right kind of agents. No doubt. And, and I'm seeing it already. You know, I, I bought in right away and I knew that I'd have, have a lot of agents in my office that would as well, but I didn't know how good it was going to be. When I saw the support that comes from the staff that's here, when I saw the resources that are available to the agents, the training, the education, it's a different level. And I think it's a level that we not that we didn't expect it wasn't even what we hoped for. It's, it's more than what we were even imagining. Well, you don't know what get. you don't know. right? Absolutely. And we had no idea. And, and, you know, I, I felt like I was doing a great job as a broker, surprising, so, you know, providing the support they needed. 
there's so much more out there, but as a brokerage our size, we never could do it. And so that's where my agents are in such a better spot now, fast forwarding from those few years where I was broker owner uh, to to where they are, that seeing what they get now makes me happy. And I wouldn't have made this decision if I didn't think they'd be in a better place. Well, not to sit here and pat each other's backs, but I feel exact same way, but the other way. I, I feel like for our Northeast Iowa crew and that whole region, I. I have not, we have not been able to provide the level of leadership that we think you're going to be able to offer them in proximity and knowing the market, knowing the MLSs. And so it, it really, it's, it's a better together kind of idea. It is. And, and the great part was, is it, you'd mentioned at the beginning, I've been involved at the, the local leadership level and the state leadership level really since I got licensed. And that's part of what I mentioned even back in, in high school is that you're kind of involved in it all. And you take those leadership roles when you know that it fits what you can do well. And so I met a lot of C21 agents through being involved at the local level. And so I knew a lot of the the Waverly and Cedar Falls agents. I also knew some of the the Ankeny, Urbandale, Johnston agents that are down in this area that I knew through being involved at the state level. And so I knew something really good was happening, number one, because I really liked these people, mm. but two, because people were coming here and they weren't leaving. And so if everybody comes to a brokerage and stays, there's a reason. You know, when when such high retention numbers are there, People, people are knowing something that from the outside we don't know, and, and that's a curious thing. Well, what's curious about it is it's a very hard thing to articulate or package and bottle and sell. So right. we, we, do a, we struggle really to communicate some of that value because until you spend some time inside of our walls, how do I tell um, agents, we just have a higher quality of uh, support staff here. We have really good people who actually go the extra mile, who actually defy mediocrity, right. and it's hard to sell. Well, it is hard to sell because I think that that most brokerages, if you went to those, they'd say the same. They'd thing. say the same thing, and I, I, you would hope they would, right? I, you would hope that they they would praise their staff and say what great resources they provide. Um, but I've spent enough time on the outside looking in to see that that's not the case. That mm -hmm. there are brokerages where their staff they feel is just an average staff, but they get the job done at least. And and that's where I think things are different here, and that there's there's an investment into the staff because we want to provide the best staff possible for those agents to excel. Well, we're trying and we're not there yet. We've got lots of work to do, but man, we've got a lot of good people here and yep. the, we realize uh, there's nothing more valuable that we can be doing right now than caring for and investing into our support team. Obviously we're obsessed with our agents and their outcomes, but we can't do that without our staff. You have to have great staff. Yeah. You know, that's what allows those agents to feel comfortable saying, all right, you know, where am I best used? It's out selling and, and creating relationships. I'm going to let the staff handle what the staff can do well. And I'm going to go out there and meet people, create these relationships that I need so that I can be a phenomenal salesperson. Well, we'll, we'll close that chapter with a shout out to our team there. Absolutely. So we appreciate I like it. you guys. Um, you touched on, <clears throat> you touched on IAR leadership, all that fun stuff. And, um, T tell me more about that. So at what point do you start either teaching or getting involved at the state level? Because yeah, that's so a whole nother beast, right? It is a whole nother beast, um, but it's a good beast. It's a, it's a good one. So I, I was one of those, like I said, if there's an opportunity to provide leadership or to provide my skill set to better something I'm going to. And so in 2000, and I got to get all my dates right here, 2012, I became the vice president of our local board. So I'd only been in the in the industry really about 26 months and they said, hey, Travis, we want you to be our vice president. This was before the Northeast Iowa boards merged. So exactly. what was that one called? So that was Backbone Board. And, okay. and so at that point in time, we were 85 members, um, which I didn't know any better, right? Didn't know what was out there. You don't know what you don't know. I didn't yeah. realize how many better opportunities were out there. So we were a board of 85 members. Um, and so I became vice president 
and was elected president and then quickly realized I'd put myself in a tough spot because there was nobody willing to follow me. And so I had to be president for a second year. And at that point in time, um, that's when NAR had come through with core standards, which we hear CEOs at the local level talk about all the time. Well, for anyone that doesn't know what that means, wh yeah. what was that? Yep, absolutely. So, so NAR decided in beginning of 2014 that they were going to um, implement a set of standards that if you wanted to exist as a local board, here are some things you have to do. Um, and you have to provide you, your, your members a CEO. You have to have some type of office location. You have to have financial solvency, which means, you know, your finances are in order and you can exist. As what an was entity. their goal behind that? And the writing on the wall was we had too many small throughout the entire country, too many small boards, boards of 85 people that weren't getting any benefit. And we weren't the only benefit our board provided was access to the MLS. And so we looked at that and we said, all right, here's an opportunity for us to provide our members better opportunities than they already have, better resources. And so we went from five local boards and combined to create the Northeast Iowa Regional, which Waterloo Cedar Falls was the hub of that and, and still is. But, you know, our region is really, you know, Highway 63, Highway 20 and everything else except Dubuque. And so we're a huge Northeast chunk of that. Um, and so as that board formed and, uh, and really we saw what we had never had access to. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. And so at that point in time, I'm like, good, this was the decision that needed to be made. All of our members are in a better spot because of this merger. And so I was again, a year into that and, and I'd served on the board and they said, Hey, Travis, this is a, a good opportunity for you to become a leader at the local level. We need an outsider because I wasn't from that Waterloo Cedar Falls area. Uh, we need an outsider to come in and, and be our board president down the road so that, everybody sees that our goal is to integrate, that we want everybody to feel a part of this. And so in 2018, uh, I was the the local board for Northeast Iowa, which I was the first one not from the Waterloo Cedar Falls area. You were the president. I was the president board. of that yeah. board then. Which yeah. got you connected to IAR. Got me connected to IAR and all of the, the C21 agents that were in Waverly, that were in Cedar Falls, yeah. that were in the Des Moines metro area. They're and sitting on the board. They're on the board them. with yeah. me. I'm creating relationships with them. Um, you know, They're the people that we hang out with when we go to events. I'm like, all right, this is good. And so that evolves into you teaching at IAR then. It does. And and one of those things where I'm I'm involved, I'm, I'm serving on some committees, I'm chairing a couple committees, and that's when IAR says, all right, you know what? Like, do you have any interest in, in teaching uh, some of our courses? And I said, you know what? I've, I've, I do. I'm, I'm interested in teaching new licensees because I know for the most part, unless they're going into a, a larger company that provides them really good resources, those, those new agents are being thrown to the wolves. And so I want to get them as prepared as possible. And so that's when I started teaching some of those 36-hour classes that everybody has to take. Several of our agents here had have had me, which is fun. Yeah. yeah, which is great when I get to uh, to start meeting some of those people that have been my in, in some of my classes. So it was those pre-licensed classes. And then actually most of what I'm teaching now uh, focuses on fair housing. And so I teach a lot of uh, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion courses, and then fair housing classes. And so which is interesting um, because of the fact that my wife always laughs. She's like, why do they want, you know, a straight middle-aged white guy teaching these? <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? Because this is a great opportunity that, that someone that's not marginalized, it's not someone that, that is constantly in fear of being oppressed, right, can be the one to speak on behalf of those people that don't have a voice sometimes. And so that's been fantastic for me. The other ironic part is, is in my market, we don't have a whole lot of diversity outside of socioeconomic status. You know, we have mm -hmm. people that literally, you know, their parents have never owned a home, 
right? Because they've rented their entire lives. They, their parents have never gotten a loan, never gotten a mortgage. So we do have buyers that they're first time homeowners in generations. Mm -hmm. They, you know, they didn't know what a credit score was until they went to the bank and the bank said, Hey, we got to improve your credit. And so part of what we get to do is teach our buyers how to become homeowners, which mm -hmm. is fun. But we start to realize that a lot of this deals with, with, disparities because of minorities. Um, and we're not just talking race, we're talking socioeconomic status, we're talking origin. Um, and so it's, it's really, has that always been a passion for you or that evolved? It has. Um, nope, it definitely has, you know, and I was, I was at uh, university of Iowa and so was introduced to a lot of things that I didn't see in my, in my small town in, mm -hmm. in strawberry point, Iowa. And so getting to the university of Iowa and seeing what was, what was out there and, and issues that people that didn't look like me, act like me, think like me had to deal with, mm -hmm. uh, that became a passion pretty quickly. And so to now be able to teach classes about something I'm passionate about is fantastic. Um, but I also get to create awesome relationships with people all over the state and, and sometimes over the country that are like, wow, like hadn't thought about it from this perspective. Let's talk more. And so it's those relationships that, that are what are bringing me to the classroom for IAR. So you've done the intro courses for new licensees. You've done this diversity and uh, you're doing some other stuff though too, right? At the, at, for, for leadership? Yeah, yeah, yep. So I do, uh, so I went through the National Association of Realtors Leadership Academy. Um, that's a, you know, it's through NAR. Um, each year they have about 250 apply. They take about somewhere in that 15 to 20 range. And so I did that in 2020, which was obviously just like we always talk about the pandemic, the worst year to be involved in something because it's all Zooms. Um, yeah. And so I went through that training and I had gone through the IAR leadership training that they had done back in 2017. And I said, you know what? I think we can rework this. And I, I think we can start providing leadership opportunities and training at the state level so that those leaders can go back and support their local boards more. And so I do. It's a pretty bold thing for a guy from Olwine to step in and say, hey, I'm going to fix your <laughs> whole process. Who did you say that to? Uh, you know what? And, and so I will say that even though it was bold, I had 100% support from yeah. the whole crew. Um, so Jen Burkamper, who at that point was our president-elect, yeah. I went to Jen and said, hey, I want to rework this. She said, go for it. I went to Gavin Blair. I said, hey. I said, let's do this. And then Mark Gavin, who's our communications yeah. director at IAR, who had also been the one to run the Leadership Institute for a long time, but it had always been staff-led. And I said, I, I will help you do this. I'll help you create a program, and then we're going to do it together. So awesome. Mark and I, have, have we just finished our second class, getting ready for our third group to come through. Um, but it's been a fantastic way to, again, create those relationships and not just for people that want to be local presidents, not just for people that want to be IR presidents, but they want to be leaders in their own communities. So mm -hmm. they understand, you know, how do I take my skills and I go and, and better those groups in my community that need me. Yeah. And this is just core to you, right? It, it is. It's, Absolutely. This is what you like to read about, learn about, talk about. It is. And it's, you know, we've, like we said, I, I'm a reader. Um, I'm constantly, you know, reading one, if not two books at a time. And, and a lot of those are, are focused on just leadership and, and kind of the whole philosophy behind it. You said back in high school when you were involved in a bunch of stuff that that was when you realized you wanted to be a leader or I don't remember how you said it, but what, can you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it was. Uh, I remember, you know, and, and it's crazy I remember her name, but Carol Harder um, was a, uh, she was an author and a, she led leadership institutes around the world. And she had come to our high school and I, she did a, a day and a half seminar about leadership. And it was a small group of us, probably through the entire high school. I think maybe there were like 15 to 20 of us, a, a few from each class. 
And that was the time where I, I kind of realized like, wow, this is, this is where I fit in. Um, you know, being a, a leader and in helping other people succeed. And it wasn't a leader because I wanted the spotlight because I don't necessarily really enjoy that. It was that I like seeing people that have that potential to succeed and just need someone to kind of help them through that. And that's where my leadership style really came in. So that's it's what leadership great. means to me. I Absolutely. Mean, I think there's people that think leadership is about <laughs> sitting on top of the throne, but it really is about serving others and uplifting others. It is. And, and servant leadership gets a, a bad name because people think, you know, the, the whole idea of serving, but that's really what leadership is. It's 100%. it's serving those people that are following you. And then it's also replacing yourself. And that's what I like seeing is, you know, who's the next person that's going to lead a local organization and make it even better than it is right now. Who's going to lead our state and make it even better than it is right now from an IR perspective. Those are the things that get me most interested in leadership. It's fun. It is. Well, no, we. Uh, I'm very appreciative of your involvement at that level. I, I, I joke about this. I avoid that stuff like the plague because <laughs> I, I struggle with the politics. So even getting involved Absolutely. at DMAR at the board level and serving as the MLS chair for several years and still sitting on the board there, I know I can offer insight and value and be helpful. And I want to be a part of making the whole MLS and the board and frankly, our whole industry better. It's There's always this challenge between do you do that within the walls of your company or within your business or at the state level, because even at the national level. And I suppose what's beautiful about that is we, we need to be fighting on all fronts. It, it is. And, and, it, and I think that's the, the difference is that if we focus from a microscopic level on just our brokerage or we focus on, on just our local association, we forget that we still have to rely on our state yeah. association. We still have to rely on national. And so we see a lot of people and, and it is frustrating. There's no doubt about it because things from an association level move at a snail's pace. A little more bureaucratic than, Absolutely. than a small brokerage of 11 in old wine. It is, yeah. it is. But even if you had a, a brokerage of 170, like we have mm -hmm. here, um, it would be much easier to say, here's what changes we're going to make within C21 signature. And we can implement those hundred percent fast. Yep. yep. We can, we can implement those sometimes too fast. For sometimes our staff. a bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we learned, I, you know, I feel like I still need to keep apologizing to the staff with how quickly this all came about. Uh, <laughs> but at the state level, things move slower because we're working in so many different markets with so many different attitudes towards how it's going to affect them. And so I think what's benefited me in this position is the fact that I'm not coming from a large market. Um, you know, I'm coming from a small town. Most of the decisions we're making at the state level haven't affected my market directly, but I can still see big picture. And so when we have these conversations mm -hmm. of the directions we're going, um, I think there's a level of trust where people look at me and say, okay, Travis isn't doing this for any self-serving purpose. And that's what helps. Um, you know, so I, in, you know, I've, I've been involved at the state level in 2025, which when I first ran seemed like a long time ago, but 2025, I'll be president of IAR. We'll address you as Mr. President. I would prefer you do not ever. <laughs> uh, but, but I'm excited for that because I think it brings somebody from a, a very small town um, in what was a very small market. And it, it's that connection piece where, where how do we make our whole state better instead of just a brokerage or just a market or just a local association? How do we make the entire state better? Because if one realtor um, does something and, and unfortunately makes a poor decision, that reflects on every single realtor. Yep. And it doesn't matter if they're your company or not. Uh, so when we talk about raising professionalism, we're raising it for everybody because when one screws up, it reflects on every single one of us. And that's a scary thing. <clears throat> After all these years, it's weird when I encounter things for the first time. But just last week, I read somewhere, oh, what's the proverb? Two, two guys sitting on a boat, same boat. And the guy in the front looks at the other guy and says, hey, your side of the boat's your side sinking. Your sinking. 
<laughs> I, I heard the exact same thing that was that on CNN. Somebody was in an interview. I was listening to an interview that somebody recorded and said the exact same thing. Like yeah. you can't tell somebody that their end of the boat sinking because we've got a problem. Well, <clears throat> yeah, and uh, maybe boat sinking is too big of a language, but I'm not sure that it is. We, <laughs> I, we've been convicted. Well, first of all, we love this industry. Absolutely, Joe and I aren't actually principally about real estate. We're actually entrepreneurs. We love taking people out of the rat race, helping them break free of their family tree and their build better futures and lead meaningful lives through business. It just so happens that real estate is about is the best place to do that in the world. <laughs> right. So I'm deeply grateful as a first generation immigrant for what real estate has done for me and my family and everyone around us. These stories on this podcast are just incredibly inspiring of where people are at and what they're doing. But this boat, is not a very healthy boat. And if we don't all figure out how to become obsessed with the consumer and figure out how to create value for buyers and sellers, well, frankly, Zillow should win. So whether it's at the company level, the agent level, or the state level, and frankly, NAR, it's, it's our boat. And it's a boat worth spending time on. So that's why I'm grateful you are fighting that fight at the <laughs> state level. And um, we're going to keep focusing on it here. And I think that's another better together. I'm, I'm excited for the insight you can bring into our team on how our team then can keep shifting as these winds keep changing. Because there's a lot going on. There's there a lot right going now. on. There is. Let's dig into some of that though. Yeah. So there's a whole bunch of these topics. I don't know where to start, <laughs> but uh, um, you've, you've seen a whole bunch of MLSs, first of all, around right. the state. Now there's fewer today than they were before, right? In fact, how many are there now in the state? Do you know? So, yeah. So right now we're at... We're, Technically 13. So 12 of our associations have their own and then five are run by the state. So uh, those smaller, because we do still have some smaller boards that when all these other mergers happened, uh, we had boards that said, you know what, we're going to hold on. We're going to make this work. And they have, um, for the most part, they have. The hardest part for some of those smaller boards is to run an association and to run an MLS. And, and so there is a distinction between, most realtors would not know there's a distinction between. Absolutely not. And, and that's, that's one of those conversations we talked about leadership Institute, but when I have every local president in the room, I ask about their value proposition. What are you as a local association actually providing to your members? And if all you can tell me is that you're providing MLS access, there's no reason that you should exist. At this point in time, we need to get you into a bigger board that can provide more resources because MLS is, is important, but it's not, it shouldn't be the only function of your, your association. Um, but that's what we're seeing. And so we went from, you know, having, I think 25, 30 different MLSs that now we have 12 plus five that are already run by the state because those boards just weren't big enough to do association work and MLS work. So those boards still exist. They, they still have their own connection as an association, but their MLS connectivity, I believe is through Paragon. It is. Is, yep. is managed by you know Nick and whoever and Gavin yeah. and them at the board, right? It is. That's right on. And <clears throat> this is something that you are an advocate of. Uh, not that part, the consolidation. The consolidation of MLS. I, I am. And, and part of it is, is, is the writing on the wall. Um, and we've already seen this. We keep, we, you know, for the longest time, and I think we've started to move past it, but people said, you know, Zillow has all the information. Realtor.com has all the information. All these third-party aggregates have all the information. They have the data. And they're going to continue. No matter what, they're going to still have that data. And so when we try to create boundaries that don't actually exist, Right. And, and so I'm from a, a market where you get to Highway 20 along Independence area, Manchester area, especially Manchester. Some of those agents are belonging to three or four different MLSs. And so not only are they paying the dues because it's not just a financial thing, um, but they're following different sets of rules and they're having to upload multiple times into different MLS systems. 
that's not the best for the consumer. And, and that's the issue is, is we keep looking at these local boards that are saying, we want to hold on to this because we don't want people that aren't from our market coming in to sell in our market is the biggest obstacle that we see people telling us. The problem is I can, I can drive to Okaboji today. And as a licensed real estate agent in the state of Iowa, if I want to show a property in Okaboji, I can show a property in Okaboji. I they don't can, have to be. They early. can make it difficult for you. Absolutely. They can say, well, no, we're not going to give you. I mean, at the end of the day, the listing agent has to give you access. It's just going to be more of a pain. It's going to be a pain. But you have a license to sell in the state. Anywhere. Right? And the MLSs don't restrict you from doing that. They just make it challenging for you to figure out compensation, cooperation with the other yep. brokerage, and access to the property. It, absolutely. Access. And then and then some information, right? There, there are bits and pieces of information that yep. are on that MLS that aren't available to the public, but it's pretty minimal. So just help me with this. Let me back up for a second. You, I'm, uh, let's just call it a spade a spade. You are for the consolidation. I'm, let's just say for the sake of people listening, I'm neutral. Yeah. Um, but, but I, meaning I'm principally for this organization. That's my, yeah, this is my baby. That's what you should be doing. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's where I have to focus my time. And so I've got to pick what politics I fight as well. But let's say that we we agree. Help me with the fears and the benefits. So yeah. the, the one fear you're saying is people from outside of your market are going to show up and sell. And you're saying, well, they can do that they anyway. They can do it anyway. And, and the other thing, too, is part of our code of ethics is being realtors. says if I don't understand that market, right? If, I, if I'm coming to Des Moines. This is the flip side of it, right? This, you shouldn't be selling. I should market. not be selling in Des Moines. I don't, I don't sell in Waterloo or Cedar Falls because I don't sell. You know, I don't know mm. that market. That's, that's a 35-minute drive. I'm referring that out, right? And that's what good agents should be doing. When we see markets that are this tough, and I understand people are trying to survive right now sometimes because inventory is so tight. So they're motivated to sell anywhere they can. They'll go anywhere they can to, to but the problem is, is if we don't know that market and we don't understand, if we can't find comparable properties in that market, if I don't understand that market, I should never be selling in that market. So the idea that people are going to come in and sell in our market, they can if they want to. Already. But they shouldn't. Right. And so that's that's one of the biggest obstacles we have right now. There are two sides to that argument. Then. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. So some of the fears aren't irrational. Not at all. I would argue some of them are, but, <laughs> but some of them aren't. We're trying right. to, uh, I guess it's a catch 22 to some extent. But from your vantage point, you believe, I think you used the word inevitable. Mm. Um, talk to me about that. So it's inevitable, uh, maybe some insights on timeline and why it's inevitable. Yeah, so and it being a statewide MLS. Right, not just a statewide. I think the sooner we see statewide, then we start to see regional because this is already happening. If you're in the Council Bluffs area, you're already practicing in Omaha as well, right? So we're crossing those state lines. If you are in Dubuque, you're probably into Illinois. You might also be into Wisconsin. Um, if you are these definitely border, these border these border quad are cities, tricky. you know, yeah. quad cities. That's tough because quad cities, the Quad Cities Association of Realtors, is actually an Illinois entity. They're in, they belong to Illinois as their primary. But that's because they do so much business on both sides of that border. So to say we're only having a statewide, well, what about all these these areas where we're crossing borders anyway? So it becomes regional, and then we're looking at, at that point in time, are we just kicking the can down the road until this becomes a nationwide MLS? And if so, what does it hurt, right? Because I can get the data from RPR, from Realtor.com, from Zillow. I can get almost all the data about any property that's listed anywhere in the U.S. right now. And so preventing us from from being able to find that data, but even more so from having different sets of rules because every, every MLS has their own rules that those members have to follow. And they're usually pretty protective of those rules, right? I want everybody to change things to a pending when it's pending. It needs to be in with a certain number of hours. Partly because that's what they're accustomed to. And absolutely. most of the rules work. We're all yeah. selling real estate, but 
we've gotten married to our way of doing yeah. things, right? Yeah, and, and same way, you know, we, we start talking about our MLS rules. We start talking about then the platform that we use because you mentioned Paragon a little bit ago. Mm-hmm. We've got people on, on CoreLogic and Matrix and Flex. Um, they all think theirs is the best. They do, and, and I'll be the first to argue. I've been on Paragon. I was on Rapitoni, so anybody that ever used Rapitoni back in the mm-hmm. day, that was junk. <laughs> Rapitoni was terrible. <laughs> we moved on to Paragon, and I thought, wow, like this is what's out there. I realize now Paragon's not a good system. You know, it's it's not by any means what I ever choose Paragon. It's what I'm on, and am I, am I comfortable with it? Yes. After seeing other systems that are out there, is it the best one available? Not even close. But when we start talking about a statewide MLS, people are so comfortable in their own platform. They say, you know what, I'll do this if we get to stay Paragon. And I understand it. I mean, especially from a technology standpoint, if I know how to input a property, I know how to do my searches, I know how to manipulate that system. Change is hard. Absolutely. And everyone's afraid of it. Yeah. And and I get it. So it's not that I don't understand uh, the concerns. um, And and we said the fears, and some of them are irrational that, that, you know, we had the same conversation with the mergers when we became part of the Waterloo Cedar Falls board and Owine, everybody said, well, here we go. We're going to be out of business because all of these big time agents from Waterloo and Cedar Falls are going to come in. They're going to list all the properties. They're going to represent all the buyers. It helped our market more than it ever hurt our market because it opened us up to new eyes that we never had before. I'm trying to think about the extent to which this, I mean, this is obviously important and, and relevant at the board level, even at the company level, because we we're on multiple MLSs dealing with multiple. Well, that's what I was going to ask. How many how many MLSs do you do you belong to? Oh, good. Right now, Golly. right, uh, six or seven. Yeah. Right, which is crazy because that's six or seven different sets of dues. That's six or seven different sets of rules because hardly protocols, anybody... fees. Right. Yeah. And and that's that's. But my question was, how much is that impactful at the age? I suppose at the agent level, it is impactful when you're in any of these border. Like we've got a lot of agents that both on DMAR and, and CIBR. Yep, absolutely. And we see this especially, you know, and the reason this became a conversation, this never affected me personally practicing in a wine. So, and I think that's why when people hear me talk about it, they're a little more interested because I have zero self-serving purpose out of this. Yeah. But when we saw it through Cedar Rapids and Iowa City, that agents that were in some of those towns right between, or if you were even in Iowa City, you were also belonging to Cedar Rapids, and Cedar Rapids was belonging to Iowa City, two different platforms, right? So you had Paragon in Iowa City, you have CoreLogic in Cedar Rapids, you have different sets of rules. So the dues part of it is actually pretty minor. Yeah, we can save you some money, but that's really not why we're doing this. It isn't about saving our agents, you know, six hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars a year. That's nice, but that's not the goal. The goal is the fact that we start creating boundaries and it only hurts the consumer and it hurts our members. And the boundaries made sense 10, 15, 20 years ago. They just don't in a Zoom dot loop world. At, at all. But the, some of the principles remain intact. We're still suggesting you shouldn't be operating outside of your realm and space, your, your area of expertise. Not you, at all. And so we're just suggesting that people can, if you're desperate, you can already cross boundaries you shouldn't be crossing. Yeah. I mean, my sister lives in this, you know, she lives in this area and she's constantly saying, you know, Travis, can you come help me find a property? No, you know, I'll find you yeah. a great agent. I don't know Des Moines. I don't know this metro area. I should not be helping you. I shouldn't be helping people in the Iowa City area when college friends are like, hey, do you want to you help us list our house? Not, not a bit. It certainly makes it easier for a less than remarkable agent to be inclined to start dabbling. Absolutely. And, and they do. Yeah, they do. But, but we're going to have to figure that out. 
Because and that's, yep. And, and again, I, I would say it's such a small percentage of those yeah. agents that are getting outside of the markets they should be in. Well, because 80% of the business is being done by the pros at the top right. and they have no interest in driving four hours to show houses. They don't, some of them yeah. don't have interest in driving 40 minutes, exactly. right? That's, that's where they're at and I don't blame them. So that's on the horizon and it that's is. something you've been involved in and is going on. And I know that our agent base have uh, differences of opinion on this. Oh, just inside absolutely. Of our walls. Yeah, and, and <laughs> even within leadership at, at IAR, there's, there are good conversations about pros know, and cons, pros and, cons yeah. and do we do this? But we also know that if we could go back 15 years, pre-Zillow, pre-realtor.com and say, hey, we're going to build a national MLS, everybody's going to join it and we're going to control all that data, then we'd be in a spot right now where we'd all be members of that and we wouldn't be worried about what is Zillow going to do next? What are some of these these larger third parties that are trying to remove the real estate agent from the transaction? What does that look like? Yeah, that was the previous chapter of this. We, yeah. we handed the keys over to third parties and they're driving the vehicle. Now. And they are. Yeah. They are. Well, they are and they aren't. So we, you know, we keep talking about the number of uh, transactions across the U.S. that have some sort of referral fee attached to them at this point. I think it's in the 40 percentile yeah, or something. It's high whether it's Zillow or um, re Relo companies or whoever, yeah. everyone's trying to get a piece of this pie because it's a, it's a multi-billion dollar a industry. And yet inside of our walls, although we do Zillow and all sorts of things, the vast majority of our, our business is not uh, uh, attached to a referral fee. So I, I love what we've done here from a philosophy standpoint, and I think we need to hold the line on that. Uh, but either way, I think I'm with you. Change is inevitable. And I think getting ahead of it's probably the right idea. Yeah. And, and again, it's it's something that that's not going to be rushed through. We've we've been having these conversations since 2017, so it's not anything mm -hmm. new. We're five years into this, but five years ago, if we talked about this and said, "How long is it going to take?" It was you know 10, 15 years. Within just probably the last 12, 18 months, now we've started to see that this is picking up. There's already regional MLSs. You know, Chicago's MLS stretches all the way through that eastern side of, of Illinois. Minnesota has one that takes up almost the entire state of Minnesota. Now, Des Moines' um, 2,500 members is, a, is kind of a, a joke relative to it, some of the larger MLSs that exist. And, it, it, and they're working, right? Absolutely. And, and they are working. And I wouldn't say, you know, the, the nice part is, is Des Moines, you know, they've at least had these conversations. And so yeah. they understand DMAR is the, the power player in our state. There's no doubt about it. They have substantially more than any other board out there. Um, you know, they're... They're about three times bigger than Cedar Rapids, which is our next largest board. Um, so we understand that that DMAR has to be on board for something like this. But when we look at the future of what an MLS looks like and what really real estate looks like, holding out is just tough. You know, it's, it's one of those things that we can be stubborn and we can wait. Well, um, there's plenty of stubbornness there going is. on. But there's also a changing of the guards going on. I, I'm looking at these boards that I'm involved mm -hmm. in, and a lot of them are getting a little more youthful. And so as chapters change and people move on, I think some of the, the past tends to fade out and uh, hopefully we move towards innovative decision-making inside of our boards because the, again, the boat, the boat is worth saving. It is. So. And you know, and we haven't talked about this. So I don't know if you've read uh, think again yet by Adam Grant. Um, I think again. Yeah, think again. Yeah, white book. Uh, yeah, yes, I, yes. I, I think I've read half of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's it is it's it's a lot of of repeat of kind of the similar. It's some of those I get. Atomic Habits was a great book, but mm -hmm. after the first about twenty pages of it, I'm like, yep, I agree one hundred percent. I see outliers up here on the shelf. I'm like, outliers love it. Couldn't finish the whole book because I agreed with it within the first few pages. So <laughs> that's my issue. Is if I start reading, I'm like, yeah, like hundred percent, I'm in. But Adam Grant, I think in his book, Think Again, I love it because he just says we have to stop 
and try to figure out why we're wrong, right? So instead of, of advocating on behalf of this is why I'm right, especially for me, saying that we need to look at a, a statewide MLS, I like when people come to me and be like, here's, here's the reason we shouldn't. Um, because then I have to pause and think, wow, you know what? Like, you're right. We should yeah. probably have this conversation quick. I've had uh, WDIS up on my whiteboard for a long, long time. It's what don't I see? <laughs> right. What yeah. don't I what, see? Yeah. Same thing. Absolutely. Um, so uh, I, I look forward to this conversation evolving. I think we've got lots to talk about and even within our offices. The other topic that's coming up a bunch right now in even yesterday in our Golden Circle meeting is this uh, buyer agency conversation as it pertains to buy side commissions, which really let's go backwards. So we've got this NAR DOJ lawsuit going on. The DOJ apparently is just got a laser-like focus on the National Association of Realtors right now. They right? do, and, and just real estate in general. Looking yes. at, so, so you know, to kind of give a little background information on that DOJ yep. ruling, they started looking at, at how much of sellers' equity and eventually buyers, because sellers get, you know, sellers don't pay a commission until a buyer gives them money to pay the commission. So, you know, it's the chicken and the egg thing. Does the seller pay it or does the buyer pay it? And I've had this argument enough that, that we don't even really need to have it, but somebody is paying that commission. And DOJ is saying, wait a minute, that's a substantial amount of equity that this client had in their home that they're now giving back to an agent. And so DOJ is saying, do we need to look at this and try to pick apart what these agents are making? Um, you know, or do we need to make sure that it's clear to the public that the public understands what agents are making off of these transactions. Because 6% of the value of all real estate in this country is baked in as a function of our industry. It is. It absolutely is. But the problem is, is, is and, and this is the argument I make, but you know, it, I wouldn't say it falls on deaf ears, but I don't have a loud enough voice, is that that 6% isn't going into the pockets of our agents. Right, that a, a small percentage. By the time they take care of splits, by the time they pay any staff that's with them, by the time they pay for advertising, by the, video, photography, all of it is supporting industry. Uh, but on top of that, they're going out, and that money is going back into their communities because, you know, not only do we know that realtors volunteer at two and a half times of any other profession, but they're also the ones that, you know, when when post prom, when PTA, when United Way. When they need financial backing, they're going to real estate companies, they're going to realtors, and they're saying, hey, like, can you cut us a check? Um, and so that money that we talk about, that, that percentage that is, is put into that doesn't go into these real estate pocket, agents' pockets. It's getting spread out into our communities. Okay, but so, so move forward. So it's starting with this idea that the DOJ is saying we need to just check out this industry and make sure that they're not taking advantage of the consumer, which is a healthy thing, right? It, it is a good thing. And that's, that's the thing is that the initial investigation into it wasn't a bad thing, right? Is are we seeing too much money being pulled away from owner's equity? But again, it, it's going back into these communities. It's not going into somebody's bank, corporate bank account and hanging out there. It's which getting is, spent. I think it's true of any industry. I mean, uh, I'm all for people making money if yeah. they create value. And so I think markets should be regulated by, well, the open market. Right? Yeah. And that's, that's why real estate has, has succeeded like it has, you know, we could be flat rate and we could be, you know, we could be, and we are, they, they, it's out there. It's right? out there. It's not right. like it's not an option. Yeah. People it, are not choosing that. And they're drugs. not choosing it for a reason, right? Because they know they're not getting the service because this is their biggest mm -hmm. financial asset and they want to make sure it's taken care of well. So the, the focus that DOJ is on now is is what specific bullet points of what the industry is doing that they think is questionable in part of it's the mls right are we are we restricting trade by telling people they have to be a part of this mls in order for us to to cooperate and compensate 
most good agents are going to tell you that I don't care if you're a realtor or not, if you're a member of my MLS or not, if you've got, if I've got a listing and you've got a great buyer on this, right? I want you to show the house. I want you to bring me that offer. I'm not going to tell you no, because you're not a member of my MLS because number one, I can't do that. Uh, but two, I, I wouldn't want that. That's not in the best interest of my sellers to decide who gets to show these properties based on them being a member of my MLS. So the accusation is that there's some sort of not monopoly, but unless restriction. So yeah. unless you're a part of this trade association, there really is a barrier to to conduct free trade. Absolutely, that's and that's that's what the DOJ is, is looking at and was looking at. And secondarily that if you're inside of that association, there's the accusation, which I think is actually patently false, that there's a mandate to, well, it's, okay, sorry, there is a mandate in many MLSs to compensate the buy side, but there isn't any price fixing on that. Exactly. That, but the, the assumption was that there was, that it has to be 3%. Right. And so that's what they're kind of looking into, and that's maybe the impetus for the changes that we think are coming on buy side commissions. Well, and, and I think two things are leading to that, and, and, and ironically, they're both happening at the exact same time. Is, is number one is this DOJ ruling of saying, you know, we need to look at how we are charging the buy side. Who's actually paying the buy side? At the same time, markets have gotten so tight and inventory has gotten so slim that you now have sellers saying, well, I'm not, right? Like, I'm not going to pay a buy side commission. That I, I need to. I don't need this to. Point. This house will sell whether or not I pay that, that buyer's agent a dime or not. And so we always talk about that, that things happen on the coast and then they make their way to the Midwest because we're a little more reasonable. And so, <laughs> you know, you look at California right now that there are, there are million dollar listings that are offering $500 to the buy side, yep. right? That's a scary, scary thing, especially because if those are, there's not a buyer's agency agreement in place in those markets, right? That, that list agent, yeah, is getting a cut, but they're getting a slimmer cut than what they used to because those commissions are getting tightened on a, a market right now that is so pro seller, but on the flip side, that buyer's agent then is making nothing. You know, they're making $500. And I can tell you that in those markets, that $500 isn't going far. They're making nothing because the model that they're operating on is yesterday's model where they get paid through the listing side. Exactly. Not that that's wrong or right. It's just, that's how it was. And we're going to have to shift into where it's likely to, to go. Yes. Are, are we, are you suggesting that you think the buy side commission in time here goes away then? Cause that's just what we've been speculating. And, and it is. And I think that's what, that's what the department of justice would like us to see. That's, that's what they what, want. That's what they want to see. And that's what they're hoping that we, because the, in their mind, that's the most transparent that the seller pays the seller side, the buyer pays the buy side. Right now we know that that, the seller doesn't pay the seller, the, the list agent until their house sells, but that's the buyer's money. The problem that, that we see as an association is the fact that once we take that route where the seller is only paying their, their agent and the buyer is only paying theirs, do we assume then that the price gets reduced by, by 3%? It's not going to happen, right? Because it, it's already baked in. It's and already there and values are appreciating so quickly that now we're sticking our buyers with an extra 3% closing cost that they never had before. Because they ought to, just to back up, They if if the seller's only paying three to their listing agent and the buyer <laughs> agent is now paying their buyer, they ought to be offering 3% less on every house that right. sells moving You forward. know, and that, that would be, yes, in an idyllic situation. If you could push a, a switch and reset the whole thing overnight, you could maybe get that to happen. But it's not going to happen in bits and pieces. No, over, not yeah. at all. And, and not until we get 
to a, a much more stable market. Um, and because that's going to take a really the, the, the problem. It is. Yeah. It is. So the, the first step that the DO, not the DOJ, actually, I believe Realogy is even proffering or, or offering right. up, and they're suggesting we should, as MLSs, get rid of any mandates. I want to get this right for listings to have buy side commissions. Because right now, let, let's just use DMAR or any of our local MLSs. In any of our MLSs that we're a member of now, there is a mandate for every listing to have some buy-side co cooperation. Is that correct? It, it's correct, but that number can be a dollar. So even though we have that mandate, it could be a dollar right now. And we've always talked about the fact that for quite a long time here in Des Moines, it was a dollar mm -hmm. for Iowa Realty and Keller Williams. Yeah. Just to, yep. I mean, yeah. it wasn't a secret. Right. Um, so, so the argument is they're suggesting, let's just make it that there's no mandate to cooperate. The fear then is, well, oh my gosh, these listings are going to have no cooperation. And your response is, well, probably not. They probably will have They will still have cooperation. And, and part of the reason is, is, is it's still in the best interest of my sellers to cooperate because yeah. there are going to be agents out there that have clients that are, are loyal to them. You know, and I think we're a great example of that is we create relationships, we create loyalty where they're going to come back to their C21 signature agent. They're going to say, hey, I want you to represent me on this sale. Especially in a more normal market. Especially in a more See, even in, in even this in market, markets. you could imagine trying to get away with it. You could say, you know what? Yeah. I'm going to offer 500 bucks. I'm going to list the house. I'm going to keep all the commission myself. Charge my seller three or five or six, yeah. whatever. Um, and uh, honestly, what's the buy side going to do? They're going to have to show the house and figure it out. They are. But in a normalized market, where you know that the house isn't going to sell unless one of the 2,500 other agents in the market bring a buyer. All of a sudden, you're kind of stupid not to offer uh, for some type of cooperation, both as a as an agent on the listing side and as a seller. It's, or, or we right start move. looking at at a a very innovative and and it's not even innovative. It's just different than what we've always done before. Where we say, okay, we're going to list at six percent, we're going to split three and three. Right? We could be looking now at one where we say we're listing at three and we're not splitting at all because the buyer is now going to be paying for that buyer side. That's that's the argument that we're hearing. The problem is, is when you start talking about, especially first time buyers, we talk about it in our DI courses, especially with minority buyers that maybe have never owned a home, you're saddling them with another 3% in closing costs. They're mm -hmm. already utilizing all kinds of different loan programs, whether that's down payment assistance, whether that's arms. And now we're going to say, you're also going to pay another 3%, but that 3% hasn't come off the list price, right? Ideal situation that 3%, yeah. that list price has been reduced by three. Well, Multiple offer situations, that's not a possibility. Man, this is complicated. It is. Because I don't know what the long-term picture is, but I can speculate on the short-term, the interim. In the interim, because of the market conditions, and and my suspicion is this isn't going to change for a while. It's, it's not. And if we're going to stay at low inventory and high demand because of population growth and everything else, and the market stays hot, then the likelihood of list-side agents in, a, in an environment where MLSs do not mandate cooperation, many of them or some of them will start to offer less than, uh, I can't say normative uh, amounts. Right, because there's no, yeah. There is they, no standard. They'll go back to that, that $100 on the buy side. They could side. do that. And if they do, that's where we're suggesting we're going to have to, as agents, figure out how to communicate with our buyers, provide value to our buyers right. such that they're willing to pay the difference. Absolutely. And then we're seeing that already when we start talking about for sale by owners. We start talking FISBOs. We say to our buyer, hey, they're not willing to pay 
a commission on our side. And that's a buyer's agency agreement. If I negotiate you through this, we we make this work. Are you still wait, willing to pay that 3%? Yeah. We're seeing that happen. So well, we've always done it. We've done it with Fizbo all purchases. the time. We've, yeah. It's not really new. It's just a, a new sp- a, a new it's new to see it. it on on MLS listed Correct. properties is new. Fisbo, we've been doing it for a long time, and our you know, and that's the thing. People are like, well, how do I how do I have this conversation with my buyer? It's a conversation from the very beginning. Yeah. Here's here's my value. Here's what I'm worth. I'm expecting a minimum, and if we can't make that work, then I'm probably not the agent for you. Well, and and and, and some of my agents won't like me saying this, but I. I think that's really, really healthy. I, I think we need to figure out how to articulate our value proposition better. You can't get a listing without articulating what you're going to do for We them. do it on the listing appointment all the time, but to do it in a buyer's appointment, which- We need to learn how. Again, we do need to learn how. It's not an easy change because it's not what anybody does. And so when I teach this in some classes, people always kind of laugh a little bit. They're like, you know what? Like this won't work in my market. And, and this is different than what anybody else does. And I understand that. But if we don't start doing it, especially looking at the fact we're, we're almost 6 million housing units short in the United States right now. That just came out like a week and a half ago from NAR statistics. It's 6 million housing units short. We know that our market is not going to be a stable market or a buyer's market anytime soon. Mm-hmm. I mean, not even reasonably soon. And so with that, we have to realize that if we want buyers agents to be able to be compensated and, and it might not even be the list agents, it could be the sellers saying, Hey, I know that we don't need to pay their agent anything. And this house is going to sell anyway. We have to find a way for our agents that are representing buyers to to make it in this industry. And part of that is them explaining their value and then getting compensated for it. All opportunity lies on the other side of value creation. I, I just, as an entrepreneur and a capitalist, frankly, I just don't think anyone deserves to be paid unless they deserve to be paid. Right. And that's a beautiful place because that's where the strong or the smart or the willing to work harder win. And so I see this change just like all other change. It's an opportunity for anyone willing to do the work to create value to right. go win some more. And so. it's, it's going to be an evolution. And, and yep. you know, looking statewide, we've gone from about 7,500 agents, oh, probably about two and a half years ago now to 8,200, between 8,000 to 8,200 agents. What'll be interesting is to see what those numbers look like in another couple of years if markets stay where they're at right now and and there's just not as much of that pie out there for everybody to take a piece of. Does that number start to plummet, or do we see people that are surviving off of one or two sales and, and staying in the, the industry? It'll be it'll be interesting. Well, there's always been the bottom 50%. They're always. Not selling a lot of real estate. How are we doing on time here? We got a little bit more? Ah, good. Absolutely. Um, I want to shift to, you brought this up the other day, agent wellness as something that you're spending some time thinking about or focusing on. Yeah, what, is, what does yep. that mean? Uh, you know what? So, and we've talked about it and I'll, I'll keep talking about it. I'm a reader. And and so one of the the best personal improvement books I've ever read is Peak Performance by Magnus and Stolberg. And mm-hmm. part of what we teach in Leadership Institute is we make everybody read the book, which some of them are like, you know, I haven't read a book since college. I'm like, well, it's, it's unfortunate, but we're going to make you do it now. Now's a good time to start. It's a good time to start <laughs> and we're going to make it a habit. And so- a lot of, of that book talks about burnout in any industry that you're in, any profession is how easy it is to burn out, especially if we're not taking care of ourselves. And so that's what I enjoy as, as a broker. And now in this new position is really advocating on behalf of my agents and making sure they understand like their personal wellness and, and their mental health is more important than anything else at this point, because if they're not where they need to be, they're not going to excel in real estate. Well, and you're not going to be what you need to be for your clients at all. If your head's not, or your families, yeah. you know, that's um, I'm reading right now. Like I said, I'm always reading two books at once. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm taking some master's classes right now, but uh, Stu Friedman, who is a 
professor at, at Wharton at Harvard uh, has a book called Total Leadership, and it's all about the fact that we can have four different domains of, of business and family and community and self, and we have to figure what of ourself we're going to advocate to that because there's no such thing as a work-life balance, right? I have to decide, does, does my family and my life get more or does my work and my community get more? And so where can I balance these things out? Not so much that they're going to be 50-50, but at this point in this time of my life, I'm focusing on my business. And at this point in my life, I'm focusing on my family. It's the same thing for agents. We see some agents that are so focused on on growing their business that they forget that they can burn out if they don't take care of those other things that, that are important. Uh, well, just even thinking about our meeting yesterday, <clears throat> the number yeah. of agents we've got that are killing it. Yeah, it's but awesome. every day they show up and they feel like failures to quote somebody <laughs> because of the things that they aren't yet getting done. Right. And so it's a perpetual battle in this industry because I think we attract a unique kind of human being. We do. So we, we call them failed civilians sometimes. You try civilian <laughs> life, you're like, nope, that's not for me. Let me try this crazy gig. Yeah. Full commission, completely crazy world, work environment. And so that's where we start. We start with the weird ones. And then you add the craziness of this market and where we're at. And so, yeah, the burnout, um, it's just a real thing. It is. And, and the stress, you know, and, and some of it we put on ourselves, but some of it is coming from a hundred different directions because yeah. you have, you have lenders and you have attorneys and you have clients and you have colleagues, but you also have competition that are throwing these stressors at us. And, and it's so a lot. Did you get to answers on this yet? Other than understanding the problem, what, what does this look like it's, for us? A big part of it's talking through it. Okay. Right. And, and that's where it's, it's going to be a long process, but it's, it's talking through those problems and figuring out that if, if I address them and I understand them, we're not going to get rid of these stressors. You know, our clients are always going to be our clients and they're going to wear us out, but that's also why we earn what we do 100%. is because we, we are a lot of different elements to those clients. You know, we're therapists, we're friend, we're advocate. Sometimes we're, we're giving them a reality check, but we're, we're never going to be able to get rid of that. Those clients are always going to be clients. We just have to know that we have to to not internalize that. And then we have to make sure that we give ourselves breaks. And that's the hard part for, you know, real estate agents, especially, but you know, they go on a, a trip and they're trying to check out and they're on their phones the entire trip and they're responding yeah. to emails and voicemails. They never actually have recovery period. And that's part of what peak performance is about is you have to recover or you're not going to continue to, to be great. Yeah, you have to talk about it. One, because I think just knowing that you're not the only one experiencing it yeah. is, is step one in, it is. in feeling like there's, there's, there's work to be done. And, yeah. but, but, um, I think it's this, it's also the first step to creating some level of intentionality. Okay. If this is a problem, we're all experiencing it. What are the solutions we can start to put yeah. together? So whether it's teams or, uh, it, better it systems or just learning to tap out at certain times, yeah. covering each other's backs. It's, and that's it's, why, you know, when we talk about a, a team aspect and, and how, you know, even Buffini is talking about like, this is the future of, of real estate now is teams. It's because of that support system and, and because of, of what's thrown at us in this profession right now is you have to have some type of support system. And for some people, it's just the other agents in their office. But for a lot of us, it's creating that team so that I know if I'm going to check out for a couple of days that I've got somebody that's got my back because my clients expect that. But touch on that real quick. I, I joke about, I won't name the company. I won't even say what it rhymes with, but <laughs> we, we joke about there's certain companies that it's you join as a, as a new agent. It's like, do you, do you want to join a team or do you want to start a team? And like, those are the only two options right. and they aren't, uh, you know, I'm still married to the idea that this industry, whether you're on a team or not, 
it, it really is about building a business. And for the most part, we're still targeting people who want to build their own. Right. And so team means a lot of different things. Team, I understand. Maybe team's a, a little different. In, maybe in, collaboration can also be a part of what team is. Because right now we've po not poisoned the water, but there's so much team inside the, the, this industry right now right. that it feels like that's the only option. I'm a big advocate of teams. We're spending a lot of time on it, but I've also seen that get blown out of proportion. Like an individual agent winning isn't the thing anymore. And I think part of it is, is the concept of, of team has been a little bit diluted, but also different in, in definition. And I think that there's some people, like you said, that are getting in this industry. And I, I had a student that I taught in buying practices. She got licensed in July and by August, she was advertising on social media about how she was starting, starting a team. Starting a team, yeah. No, one month into this profession, not only should you not be starting a team, right, you potentially need to be on a team mm. to get a, a full, or you have to have a great broker that's mentoring you. And, and that's the difference is so many of these people are going out thinking dollars and cents wise, I'm going to start a team because I want the money. The point of the team isn't about the money. It's about building that business so that everybody is getting the support, the mentoring, the education they need. Yeah, and I love the word mentor, mentorship. And then the word I've been using a lot the last few years is apprenticeship. Yeah. Um, this is a trade, and you got to learn it by doing it. Yeah. And we've forgotten that. Everything's about textbooks <laughs> and university, and but uh, there's some things you learn by doing. Yeah. And so whether it's in a team or finding collaboration with others, finding the capacity to learn from a master of their trade. And that's, that's exactly, you know, so when I say team, it's not necessarily that you're in an actual team structure, structure, by the by what we see in real estate it's more that you've got a group that you're working with that, that's supporting you and whether that's a, another broker but you're not on their team it's another agent but it comes back to that mentor aspect and that's why i yeah. think right now teams are so beneficial is because yeah. to be honest we see a lot of very high producing and top producing agents make this look so easy right <laughs> we make real estate look the, the best to make it look like a breeze and let's be clear it is not it is not at all and that's the thing but our really good agents make it look that way to the public and so sometimes we see people coming on thinking this is going to be super easy. Like, yeah. wow, like they just sold that house in, in two hours with multiple offers and all they had to do is put up a couple pictures of the bathroom. Yeah, That type of thing is not how this industry works, but we see people thinking that's it. Um, and, and I think sometimes it's so eye-opening to them that they need a little bit of that, that reality check, not to kick them out of the industry, but to say, hey, I'm going to help you survive, but it's not going to be easy. Well, I don't think we're saying anything different. I, I think I'm committed to the idea that the best way to learn this business is from people who are ahead of you. Mm -hmm. It's a lot harder than it seems. <laughs> so whether that's joining a team as a new agent or finding good mentorship and apprenticeship, yeah. yep. uh, this isn't something that, well, the reason that there's such a high failure rate is too many people are jumping in without yeah. apprenticeship, leadership, without mentorship, or team. That training and support at the beginning is so important. Well, we've learned a lot in that space the last few years. It's been a, a bunch of fun. Um, let's. We should probably wrap up. No, it's, that's, it's, that's it's probably been good. Uh, quite a bit of time. We, like <laughs> I said, we could talk for hours right. and hours, and maybe we can dig into some of these topics in more depth. I'd love to spend some time on the buyer's agency thing on the practical level. Like, how do we guide our buyers into understanding our value? And I think that's a topic company wide. We're going to spend some time on. I, I, and I think it's important because I think that's that's the future of where we're going. Knowing what's happening. Outside, on, on the coasts, right? So the coasts are seeing a very different thing than what we're seeing in Iowa right now. But the cool. problem's going to be that what's really successful there is going to make its way this way. And that's where sellers are saying, I'm not paying that buyer side anymore. We have to figure out how we create that value and then communicate that value to our clients. 
Okay, so I always close out with a few rapid fires. All right. Let's do this. These, aren't, these aren't that crazy. And All so, right, good. <laughs> um, let's just start with, uh, if you weren't in real estate, what, what would your dream job be? Oh, dream job. Oh, so that's different than just my job. So dream job, I would probably be, be coaching. I'd probably be coaching baseball. And you're coaching here. So yeah, I'm coaching. Love it. In, in the best industry that anyone could imagine. That's right. You, would you pick baseball, though, over real estate? If you could be like coaching major league kind of thing? That's a I tough mean, one. If I got to be in Wrigley Field every day, listening <laughs> listening to the fans and the bleachers and seeing the ivy on the wall, that would You'd be a quit. tough one to turn down. We'd, we'd lose you. I would maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe just seasonally. Um, in in just a couple sentences, what do, what do you think makes a great agent? Uh, someone that can build relationships and then communicate what they do. Very good. Um, how about a brokerage? What makes a great brokerage? I don't think it's a lot different than what makes a great agent. I think it's brokerages where there's relationships being created between the agents. You know, not everybody is living in their own separate world. There's those relationships are so important to making not just this industry, but any industry. When we, we leave people out there to try to survive on their own, that's when they don't. It's not hard to understand why we're working together when servant <laughs> leadership is at the top of the exactly. list and relationships comes before yep. transactions. It's uh, it's what we all here have in common. Yep. So love the answer. Final one. I'm just asking curious because uh, you read a lot. I read a lot. Um, what are you reading or listening to or learning right now that you think is worth sharing and people should jump into? I will say that I, I, for the life of me, I can't do audiobooks because I'm one of those people that, that dog ears, um, throw sticky notes in. So I'm always got a real hard copy Exclusively? book. Exclusively. Exclusively. I don't, I don't listen to books and I can't do like a, an electronic reader or anything like that. Like I am a hard copy, carry that book around with me. How about um, podcasts then? So podcasts I can do as long as there's, you know, if, if I can stop it in an hour, an hour and a half. And then I know that if I miss a couple that I'm still going to be able to, but if there's continuity to it, I'm in trouble. Huh. And so I need to, and it's odd. And I wish I, you're a visual learner. I you take notes. I am. I, I constantly yeah. am, am marking stuff, which is funny because uh, Sandy, who I talked about listens to books all the time. And so, you know, she'll tell me about a great book she listened to. And then I'm online ordering the hard copy of it so I can have it. But well, I'm halfway there. I, yeah. I do the audio, but if it's a good book, I immediately buy it. the physical version so I can yeah. like reference stuff. And yeah, uh, and so right now, uh, think again, I talked about the Adam Grant book, yeah. um, really enjoying that. And then total leadership by, by Stu Friedman I'm reading right now. Um, I, so I bounce between nonfiction and historical fiction. Yeah, we didn't touch on this. You've got an interesting reading. I uh, do. Hobby. I'm a weird one. Um, I don't, you know, I don't really like fiction for the sake of fiction. I like historical fiction. So, so that what's I can... historical nonfiction? Is so historical, historical fiction. fiction. So, so, uh, before we were yours is the one that I just finished last week, which was talking about, um, children that were literally stolen from their parents um, from poverty-stricken neighborhoods and in areas in Memphis, Tennessee, back uh, in the early 1900s, and then were sold to um, high-ranking members of society. So uh, celebrities, government officials, people that couldn't have kids, these children were stolen from families and resold to them, uh, but you know, portrayed as an adoption agency. And so it was a I like historical fiction and that I learned those things that I had no clue this was a real thing. Um, it's fiction, but it's based it's on fiction, but based on something that actually happened. Yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm reading the story, but I'm also learning and then questioning of like, how come, you know, how come I've never heard of this? Like the orphan trains where they would send yeah. kids from the East coast on trains all by themselves. And they'd literally just let kids out. at it stops and hope that those kids found a family that, 
that's not something I learned about in high school. So I like historical fiction from that aspect. You're just a learner. I am a learner. Yes, we talked about strength finders. Clifton Strengths learner is one of my top five, and no doubt. <laughs> well, we are looking forward to doing more of that Clifton Strength Finders inside the walls. I know we're actually planning it. I think I'm saying this for the first time out loud, but for our staff here in, in, the f- in the few weeks, months, and uh, excited for that. When I think yeah. of historical fiction, I think of like Downton Abbey. Yeah, and that's, but, I was to say, that's, yeah, my, my wife read the Bridgerton series, and that was not <laughs> not where I was, was going to be living with my historical fiction, so. Well, love the book recommendations. I Thank will you. try and finish that Adam Grant book. I, I, I need to finish it, too, so I'll, we'll see if I get partway through and realize that it's one of those that I agreed all the way through the first half and don't need to read the second. Um, but listen, I just want to say one more time, uh, super glad you're here, incredibly impressed with the relationship building that you've been working on already so far, and um, I think we're going to have a lot of fun together, and our team certainly has been grateful to have they're, you, they're your fantastic. wealth of knowledge. So uh, I'm happy and excited to be here, so this is good. Okay, well, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for coming. Thank you for joining us today. For more episodes, resources, and show notes, head to morethanmorepodcast.com.